Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. It is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce to you a longtime friend and mentor who I first became acquainted with in Memphis, Tennessee, where Tim and Kathy Russell had just relocated. Tim had served for years as the chaplain at Geneva College in Western Pennsylvania. That was also his alma mater. And Tim came and served alongside of many of the pastors there. He was leading the local seminary and also uh, serving at the church and became a friend and mentor who has always long been faithful to me. He asked for a short introduction, and uh, so I will grant him that, because Tim has always told me, good meat makes its own gravy. Well, I have longed to be here, because from that day when uh, Chuck Colson and uh, the executive pastor at Second Presbyterian came to check us out, I formed a deep love and an abiding friendship for Chuck. I had every notion then that has been confirmed throughout the years that excellence in ministering, in pastoring, in preaching would be the watchword of wherever he went. He showed it at second, where I had reason to be extremely proud of him and that has continued to be God's faithful portion. Not knowing this congregation, I was delighted for you and had great confidence in your wisdom when you called him and Melissa to come and be pastor and wife among you. It is my hope that it will be a long, felicitous pastoral congregation relationship. 
you got a great man, keep it. And some years ago, probably about something years ago, I met Dave and Vicki Burke who are here. Vicki was one of my uh, professors at Geneva College and her brother was one of my college roommates. Can remember the honor some 30 some years ago when Dave invited me to preach in his congregation. It's been many years, it's great to see them again. We're going to look at Psalm 22, the suffering and glory of the Messiah. And for those of you who take notes, let me give you what the headings will be. The suffering of the psalmist, the deliverance of the psalmist, the thanksgiving of the psalmist, the proclamation of the psalmist, the posterity of the psalmist. First, the suffering of the psalmist, God's servants, and then his deliverance. All of history points to the work and person of Jesus Christ, the King of creation. The Holy Scripture wrenches our sin-glazed eyes away from the abyss of hell and our own fallenness, from the desires of this world, from our rebellion and our despair, and transfixes us with an adoration, with a longing and a loving for Jesus Christ. And we are fixed then on the prophecies of Jesus. And then his incarnation, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and sure coming again as the king of glory. Psalms 22, 23, and 24 form a royal triplet. Psalm 22 is the song of the dying shepherd crying out to the father from the cross longing for his glory and foretelling his splendid future. Psalm 23, the song of the risen shepherd guiding his sheep through life's darkest wilderness to the courts of glory. And Psalm 24, the song of the ascended shepherd who rewards the faithful with royal majesty. The opening verses of this messianic poetry poignantly reminds us of Jesus' passion on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verses 12 through 18, the many bulls encompass me, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bashan was that area to the east of the Jordan. You'll remember, if you remember your Old Testament history, the Psalms even record the people of Israel conquering Sion, and then that terrible but mighty king, Og of Bashan. The bulls of Bashan in that fertile land were known as bulls that were extremely potent and powerful. They were hard to tame. Jesus is here speaking of those who represent us standing before his cross and jeering at him. He tells us that he's poured out in the midst of this nasty mob. 
His heart is like wax. It's melted within him. His strength is dried up. We see the agony of the God-man fulfilling that mission that he had desired from eternity to fulfill. And yet, nevertheless, experiencing the agony of what it was to be our sin bearer. He stands before the mob composing the Roman centurions, Jesus, his mother and dearest ones, those who had loved him but now were betrayers, the bewildered, dejected disciples, wondering what has happened to all of our dreams about the king and his kingship. Represented there in those verses are friends, you and me. It's all of sinful humanity. We're all graphically represented in Jesus' most vulnerable and sacrificial hours. His physical, mental, spiritual anguish are played out prophetically, even to the division of his clothes. But in verses 19 through 24, the confidence of the God-man in his father's appointment is still not shaken. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You are my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. uh, Verse 20 says, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What is the response of God's provision, of God's intercession in taking us out of those awful places in our life? Well, the psalmist tells us, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Verse 23 says, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe, all you offspring of Israel. When I read these next pastoral verses, I'm reminded of how often I've cried to the Lord in grief and and the understanding that he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from us. As I pastor people, it is amazing to see in those hard times, as I'm having with a very dear friend who has lost his wife of 63 years in the last few days. The tears flow freely. They come in each night, as he says, but there's joy in the morning because he knows the power and the presence, the provision of God amidst the grief, the crushing loneliness. He sees the affliction of the afflicted. He doesn't hide his face from us. Well, this is Jesus' turning point as this psalm speaks prophetically. And it's ours too in despair. In those times when we say, come Lord, come quickly, save me, get me out of this situation. And if it's not your good providence to take me out of the situation, then please let it end soon. Show me your power and your presence. Do something. We've all had those circumstances Stances in which we say, God, I don't know why I'm in this. Is there some reason 
that at this point you've left me. We've had those opportunities when God has delivered us time after time after time. And yet when the sharp edge of his providence comes, which it must to all of us, we're prone to think, where are you? We're prone to leave the God we love as we just sang. But Jesus, encouragement to us. In verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's saying, I'll adore you for your providence, your deliverance and care. The life of God's people is in the heartache, in the hard time, the difficulties of living in a world still broken by sin, even as it's being put together, is to want to tell of God's goodness. To say, I was in a hard, tight place. I had a difficult season of life. But let me tell you what God did. It should be the natural response of the believer to want to tell the congregation and encourage others to do the same. This, friends, is the God-centered, the Christ-centered life. It is life as it always is, lived in the presence of God. It is living and suffering, and yet knowing God's powerful presence, it's testifying and praising. You know, in some Christian church traditions, there's a time very often in each service where you give testimonies, testimony time. Well, we don't do that often in service. We do it in our lives together. We take the opportunity. But you see, it ought to be a part of what the true Christian experience is and done in worship as well. As the metrical version of this psalm says, for he has not despised the poor, he has not scorned their wretched state. He has not turned away his face, nor hid himself from any in trouble great. When any cried to him in grief, he heard his prayer and he sent relief. I have sung this psalm many, many times throughout the last 40 years. And I thought of that notion he has not despised the poor. The poor, the anawim, literally in Hebrew, those who are not just physically poor, but those who are poor in spirit. I've cried out to God at times and said, where are you in my time of difficulty? The poor, the fatherless, the widow, the weak, those needing justice, those broken by the sin of this world and by the hardness of their own flesh. Our response in those days when Jesus comes by the Holy Spirit, helping, lifting us up, restoring our perspective, making us aware even in the hard times that he's with us, ought to be thanksgiving and praise. We praise him for, because God has delivered us all from the ditch of despair and damnation. 
And he set our feet in a place that gives us confidence that while shaken, we shall not be moved. This is the good news. It's the power of the gospel. It is what makes us come together week to week at his summons and want to tell the story, want to praise, want to offer thanksgiving. The psalmist says, I'll pay my vows with them who fear. The metrical version says, those with food are satisfied. Who seek the Lord shall him adore. And may your heart live forevermore. This is the climax of the psalm. And it's indeed the climax of all redemption history, where it gives us confidence that the Messiah's rule will extend from sea to sea, as Psalm 72 says. It will extend throughout every aspect of his dominion. Verse 28 says, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations and all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him they shall bow down who give down, they shall bow down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. Literally there, a seed, one of God's nurturing shall serve him. That's us. And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And simply that he has done it. When I first read that psalm, I thought, this is a weak ending. What does that mean that he has done it? And I realized that the joy of the incarnation of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his suffering and death, his ascension after his resurrection and his coming again, is the joy of knowing that the eternal plan of God through Jesus Christ shall be accomplished. And in the generation that the psalm was written, in the New Testament era as well, in ours, and in the generations to come, there is always that faithful seed that will be raised up, will look around at all the glory of God's creation, the splendor of this world, and all that it is is it points to the life to come and those generations to come will say, he has done it. Posterity, that's us and our children and all of those who will come until Jesus returns are being raised up to say of all these good deeds, we tell this in the congregation, we're not ashamed to boldly, robustly say that everything that we have and all that we are, and all that we hope to do, and all that we hope to attain in this world has been done by Christ alone. Now that's a time for testifying, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to testify about that? Well, you can say amen to testify. That's good news. The world needs to hear that from us amidst the heartaches that we experience and all the ends of the earth will proclaim that. This is the triumphant tenor of the life of the Lord Jesus. And it ought to be the triumphant tenor of our lives day to day.
these final exalted verses prophesy the spread of the gospel in the glory of Christ's kingdom. Indeed, the whole world shall be turned to God's Son, all the earth, all the families to serve him. Kingship, we proclaim, is Christ alone over men and women and nations, over all of our thoughts. I think of that quote that I mentioned so often of the Dutch prime minister, barber, haberdasher, jack of all trades, Abraham Kuyper, who magisterially proclaimed and has been quoted so often in the last century. There is not one square inch over which the ascended Christ does not gaze and proclaim, this is mine. Or another way of saying it is, Jesus says, I've made the world. I fashioned it in concert with my Father and the Spirit of Holiness. I've determined what it would be. I've saved it. I'm sustaining it by the word of my power. I rule as king over it. Don't you want to tell that to your brothers and to the whole world that this is the end that we look forward to? It will be told, whether stoutly, loudly, triumphantly, or it may just be whispered, but it will be told that this has been done by him alone. Every grand and glorious blessing, every valley exalted, every mountain cast down, every anti-godly foe defeated, Satan cast out finally and eternally, the joy of the new heavens and the earth, all of it, every last ounce and measure is due to Christ alone. That is not only good news, that's the best news. I suggest to you, friends, that's the only news that's the curative dose for a rebellious, hurting world. And the gospel calls upon us to tell it, to tell it all our days. And if you know anything about Jesus, he rejoices in the telling of that story. He has given us that pattern even in suffering on the cross to tell us of what the Christ-centered, the God-centered life ought to be. If you know Jesus Christ as your King, as your Lord, as your Master, there will need not be any command to tell it because you will tell it through all eternity. Why? Because it's true. And so we long for that day to come when Jesus returns in majesty and glory and power and dominion. And we tell it with an understanding that we only see in part now. But when we see him face to face, a preacher won't need to encourage you to tell it because that's all you'll want to do as you look into the eyes of your Savior and you find the Ancient of Days delighting in you and you hear those words that come to all of God's people when we cross 
the Jordan of this life into Zion. Well done. Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And we will say, Jesus, you have done it. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Glory be to you, Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you that indeed every good deed in this world, the life to come that is finished, we proclaim that you have done it. May that be the watchword of this congregation as it experiences your healing, your help, your encouragement, its expansion. And may the young boys and girls of this congregation be men and women of purpose and dignity and passion who are deeply in love with you, Jesus. Thank you that they are part of that generation, that posterity, that seed that will proclaim it until the next generation. May we be faithful, fervent in our proclamation. Christ our Redeemer. Amen.